Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together. The Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen has a glorious track record of bringing souls to Christ, and uh, again, is it hundreds of thousands, if not millions of souls, uh, but he will bring our soul a little bit closer to God today. And so he's going to be talking about social problems. And he addressed that issue on his television show, Life is Worth Living. And I think we all have these issues in our own life. And so uh, Fulton Sheen will uh, take a lighter approach to uh, this issue, but uh, still uh, bring us closer to God by the end. And we've been sharing, of course, his 50-part catechism series, and we'll share another lesson today. And it's on the commandments, and uh, we shared the first part of that reflection last week, and uh, we will complete that lesson this week. And so, uh, always nice to know about the commandments. And so, without further ado, may I share with you this uh, audio recording from uh, Fulton Sheen's Emmy Award-winning Life is Worth Living television program. And uh, so, may I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he speaks about social problems. Please enjoy. Friends, some time ago, a certain postmaster in the United States came to see me. He had received a letter that was addressed simply to the good Lord. So he brought the letter to me. Oh, do not be surprised that I'm addressed that way. You'd be surprised in how many American homes it has said, Good Lord, is he on again? <laughs> so we opened the letter, and the writer asked the good Lord for $50. <laughs> Postmaster said, What do you think we ought to do about it? I said, Well, in order that he will not lose faith in divinity, I will send him 25 So I sent 25 Two weeks later, the postmaster came back with another letter addressed to the good Lord, and the writer said, the last time I asked for $50, I am asking for $50 again. Only this time, please send the money through Cardinal Spellman, because Bishop Sheen cheated me out of 25 <laughs> Uh, that experience creates the problem of who is the good neighbor. And once there was a lawyer who asked that question of our divine Lord. The lawyer first asked what he had to do to be saved, and our blessed Lord 
Asked him what the law read, and after saying that he had to love God and the neighbor, then the lawyer said, but who is my neighbor? And our blessed Lord answered it by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. And the point of the parable was, uh, not who is my neighbor, but have you the neighborly spirit? In other words, instead of asking, is this a worthy object of charity? Our blessed Lord implied we should ask if we are a worthy subject. And that parable of the Good Samaritan, as the Savior told it, was about a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And one does go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a distance of about 24 miles. And the descent is about 3,000 feet. Jericho is about 600 feet below the level of the Mediterranean. There's only one part on that road where there could possibly be an inn. There's only one place where there's water, and there's only one place where there's a plateau. Everywhere along that road that is still called the Bloody Road, it is possible for robbers to hide. I remember some years ago I was going down that road, and I stopped at an inn. And there was an Arab at the inn, and I said, Did you ever hear the story of the Good Samaritan? He said, No. And I said, you know, you're losing good business because everybody else knows the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the end to which he was brought. So I asked for a bucket of paint. He gave me a bucket of red paint, and I painted the sign, The Good Samaritan Inn. <laughs> well, our blessed Lord told the story of the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, was attacked by robbers, left half wounded, and a priest and a Levite passed the wounded man by. And then this Samaritan, a member of this despised race, took the man on his beast, brought him to the inn, poured in oil and wine into his wounds, and gave the innkeeper two days' wages, and asked the innkeeper to care for him, and then said, I will come back again and pay you what I owe over and above, what I have given you. And the good Samaritan was the one who had compassion on the wounded man. Such was the parable, which you know very well. Now let us modernize it and break it down into the problem of modern social work and social problems in general. There are four questions that we may ask. First, who creates social problems? Secondly, who ignore social problems? Three, professional workers. And fourth, oh yes, after professional workers, I should say those who work out of duty. And fourth, the real solution, which is love, in contrast with duty. First, who creates social problems? Well, the original social problem in this parable was created by an act of violence, namely the robbers. And almost all social problems today are created by violence. The Second World War of ours begot 63 million refugees, many of whom threw themselves upon the earth as something more friendly than the hearts of men. Two million refugees have crowded out of the eastern zone of Germany into the western zone for aid. They were the victims of violence. Two million Chinese 
have come down from communist China, down into Hong Kong, where there's an attempt made now to care for them. It's interesting that all the refugees are out from the lands of communist violence. Nobody is a refugee going back into those lands. Not even the communists who are arrested when they're in this country and are offered an opportunity to go to Russia rather than to go to jail. They always say, no, sir, I'll take an American jail, but I'll not go back to Russia. And then there's another kind of violence that creates social problems. Not those who steal possessions and lands, but rather those who steal from the young the image of God that is in them. The educators who tell them that they have no intellect, they have no will, they have no soul, that they're just beasts, animals. Well, if they're just beasts, we should not be surprised that they will grow up to act like beasts robbed of a great spiritual heritage. These help create the social problem. That brings us to the second question, namely, who ignores the social problem? Well, the social problem is ignored, first of all, by the communists. The communist philosophy is this, and here I'm quoting Marx. A person of and by himself is without any value. Unless an individual belongs to the revolutionary class, he is without worth. Hence, communism is willing to liquidate millions of people. So long as that socialistic, communistic core or species continues to exist. They are the ones who pass by the wounded people of earth. They are the continuators of the priest and Levite who pass by the wounded man. And incidentally, I wondered what they did after they passed by that wounded man. You know what I think they did? I think they went either to Jerusalem or Jericho and reported the matter to organized charities. After first filling out five long blanks, <laughs> then there are others who ignore the social problem. There is a minority, and thank God it is only a minority in this country, in the field of social work, who have been influenced by the Marxist or communist philosophy, and who believe that there are only social problems and not personal problems. They believe that you can manipulate society like you manipulate machinery. And once you understand social laws thoroughly, then all individual problems will be solved. This is not the truth. The only way one can ever remake society is by remaking persons. One cannot remake persons by remaking society because society is basically made up only of individuals and persons. But this group who insists upon social control with the forgetfulness of individual control 
insists that you always have to make long investigations before you can ever solve any problem. Hence the tendency today, even among foundations, to spend great fortunes making investigations, but not helping people directly. Now, it's all right to make investigations when the alternatives are unknown. For example, suppose you wanted to find out uh, which do the American people like better, a singing commercial or a spoken commercial? Or a red commercial, that is a red commercial or a blue commercial. The blue one is sung. Well, you would have to carry on an investigation to find that out. But when people are in need, when they're hungry, when they're unclothed, then one does not make an investigation. One first feeds and clothes them, cares for them, and then one finds out the number. That was what our blessed Lord did when he found the multitude in the desert. He said they were a sheep without a shepherd. And so he fed them all. And in feeding them, he discovered that there were 5,000. Some time ago, there was a, a picture magazine that carried a series of photographs of someone in the subway steps of New York. This individual was wounded or he fainted, and the photographer stood there for an hour. And he took pictures of everyone passing by this wounded man. The pictures appeared in this magazine in order to indicate that no one was interested in the individual. Why didn't the photographer help? Glory be to God, I hope if I, if I ever fainted on this program that the cameramen would run to my aid instead of taking pictures of me. And, and then, too, there must have been a number of people, when they saw the photographer there taking pictures, they thought, well, maybe this is a movie or it's something framed, but it certainly is not reality. But these are the people who pass by the wounded of the earth because they're more interested in this fictitious social than they are in the individual and in the person himself. And that brings us to the third division of the parable, namely the professional workers. Now, by the professional worker, we do not mean the organized worker. The distinction between the professional worker and those who offer the real solution, is the distinction between duty and love. The professional worker is here understood as one like the innkeeper who receives a wage for doing great social work. But he works out of duty, just as the innkeeper received two days' pay. If it was necessary for the loving hands of the Samaritan to come back to aid the professional worker. Now, the professional workers are not necessarily in religious organizations. A professional worker could be in a secular organization and still work out of love. And it is even possible that there could be some social workers in religious organizations that were working out of duty and not out of love. Despite all the good that the duty worker does, it is not yet the real solution of the problem of charity for the simple reason 
that they always work within limits. They believe in moderation. You never go too far. In other words, we close at five. <laughs> you say that there is a... Uh, that the family has not had food in 24 hours? And you have no coal? Well, sorry, this is Washington's birthday, and... Call us on Monday, and we will handle your case. There is apt to be that danger of moderation, which is not the way of love and charity. And incidentally, too, it is well for the people of a democracy to realize that they must not throw all the burdens of social work, of social problems, upon professional workers and professional organizations. Suppose I had an automobile... And I gave the right to drive the automobile to the governor. I gave the right to fill the air with hot air to the ward leader. I gave the right to buy gas to the lieutenant governor. Well, it wouldn't be long until I would no longer be free to drive the automobile. And as American people surrender responsibility for the poor and the sick and the aged in their community, they also surrender their democracy. The best preservative of freedom in any democracy is a recognition that we all have responsibility to the poor, sick, burnt, anemic members of our society. The real solution is the solution of love. The good Samaritan who had compassion. And love here means three things. To the one who loves the poor, he always believes that the rich need the poor more than the poor ever need the rich. And by the rich, I mean only those who have relatively more than those who have not. Why do the poor need the rich? In order that they may have a roof over their head, food in their stomach, clothes in their back shoes in their feet. Why do the rich need the poor? In order that they may justify their stewardship of wealth. In order that they may thank God for the blessings that they have received. In order that they may have His grace in their hearts and His blessing on their being. The poor need the rich only for material reasons. But the rich need the poor for spiritual reasons. And that was why our blessed Lord said that those who have money are to use their money to make friends. Make friends with the mammon of iniquity. The mammon of iniquity meaning money. Give it to the poor. And they will intercede for you. On the last day. As a beggar once said to me in Madrid, outside of a church, he said, listen, if you don't give to me, who will intercede for you in the last day? <laughs> and then, those who love also have a different way of handling the poor than anyone else. 
This is the way most of our charity and philanthropy is. It's, it's vertical. This is a house. It's a... <laughs> well, now, it looks like one so far, doesn't it? <laughs> this is the first story. This is the second story. <laughs> On the second floor of this house, the rich live. That is to say, merely those who have. And down here... As a poor family. Now, those who have, in most charity, will go down to the poor, supply their needs, nurse them, care for them. But after they have done that, they go back again to the comforts, maybe luxuries, of their own home. That is not perfect love. Perfect love is rather horizontal. Here are those who have, and here are those who have not. In real love, those who have pass over to those who have not, and they never again come back. They stay there until they have been relieved of their sorrow or their pain or their poverty. Just as our blessed Lord came down to this earth, crossed from the line of innocence over to the line of sinners, stayed with them, suffered with them, died for them, until he finally redeemed them. This is the kind of love that missionaries have, that will become citizens of the country in which they are missionaries, in order to better share the problems and woes and sorrows of the people for whom they care. This is the love of saints, the love that transforms the world. Finally, those who love Know that everything must be done for a divine motive. To give a drink of water in his name. And on the last day, even the great lovers of the poor will be surprised. For on that day of the greatest size, God judges them even the just, the saved, the great good social workers will say, will ask our Lord a question when he will say, I was hungry. You gave me to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me to drink. I was naked. And you clothed me. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. These great lovers of the poor who did things in his name, will be surprised that he was so pleased. And they will wonder when. The nurse will wonder when. And she will ask when. You mean when I took care of patient 
in room 238. You mean this file number 164? I cared for you. And the Savior, when they ask when, will say to them, when you did it, to the least of these, my brother, you did it unto me, unto me. When people die, their friends ask, how much did they leave? <laughs> and the angels of heaven asked, how much did they take with them in love? Bye now, and God love you. Hello, my dear friends. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, heard on Radio Maria a Christian voice in your home, and on many other fine stations throughout the world. And we're glad you're here today. I've been sharing uh, now for quite some time. Uh, I remember going to the radio station back in 2012, uh, one cold February uh, evening, uh, to share my first Bishop Sheen show. And here we are over 10 years later, still sharing the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And speaking of sharing, uh, Fulton Sheen, of course, talked about charity in that last recording. And uh, we actually have a charity book program here at Bishop Sheen Today. Uh, many of you have visited our website, bishopsheentoday.com, and have enjoyed the hundreds of videos and audio recordings uh, there at the site. And uh, they're all free downloads, so uh, no charge, no obligation, no fees, uh, the way we like it. Uh, we think salvation is free, and I think uh, sometimes Bishop Sheen's recording should be free. Uh, but uh, when we order books, it costs money, and so uh, we have a beautiful charity book program where uh, if you give us a donation of $20 Canadian, uh, we will uh, send you a book no matter where you live in the world. And uh, there's a list of 39 uh, books that we have in the charity book program. And so a $20 donation to Bishop Sheen today uh, will get you, say, uh, the book The Priest is Not His Own, uh, or uh, The Seven Last Words of Christ Explained, or uh, even, uh, again, The Holy Hour and Calvary and the Mass, a beautiful book. Uh, so again, we want you to enjoy the wisdom of Sheen, and at the same time, you're helping us to raise money to pay for our airtime cost and other expenses in the apostolate. So it's called the Charity Book Program. You can click on it. And it doesn't matter if you live in Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada, or the United States. We will send the book to you for that $20 donation. So uh, again, visit bishopsheentoday.com and uh, click on the Charity Book Program and you'll see the list of good books available uh, through this program. So it's a win-win opportunity for all of us. And of course, uh, there are discounts given by our friends at Sophia 
Institute Press and uh, Tan Books and uh, there are promo codes that you can use to receive discounts on their full lineup of books and uh, they carry thousands of books so I don't have enough time to list them here on this program. All right, uh, we are studying the catechism together. So uh, by all means, let's just uh, put our thinking caps on and enjoy the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen as he teaches us about the commandments. And so without further ado, may I present to you uh, the Venerable Sheen as he gives us a beautiful catechism lesson. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In treating the commandments, it was said that the first three treat of our duties to God and the last six of our duties to neighbor. In between the two is the fourth commandment, which is honor thy father and thy mother. This commandment has been placed in between the two because it is a bond between both God and neighbor. The justice that we owe our parents is very close to the justice that we owe to God. And it is also related to the justice we owe our neighbor. After God, it was our parents who gave us life. And this fourth commandment, therefore, is the commandment which not only links the two, but which also provides best of all for the future of our civilization. Napoleon was once asked, when does the education of a child begin? And he answered, 20 years before the child is born. In the education of the mother. There is much truth to this. Because the parents take the place of God in the home. A child is so much clay in the hands of the parents. And how that child is molded will decide the future of it. When God gave to the parents a child, he made a crown for that child in heaven. And woe be to the parents who do not fulfill the high destiny and vocation of that child. Hence, one of the gravest dangers facing children can be the example of their parents. Delinquency begins at home. Parental delinquency becomes juvenile delinquency. The divine law, therefore, regarding the two has been clearly put in sacred scripture. There is a double relationship. In the epistle to the Colossians, we read, first of all, of the relationship that children should have to parents. Then later on, the relation that parents have to children. First of all, children in relationship to parents. Children must be obedient to their parents in every way. It is a gracious sign of serving the Lord. In other words, it is accounted as obeying God himself. Now the parents in relationship to children. 
And you parents must not rouse your children to resentment or you will break their spirits. There must therefore be that gentleness that characterizes the mercy of God toward us. What a beautiful lesson of obedience is given to us in the divine child at Nazareth. There is no evidence that he ever gave to Mary and Joseph just the nominal right to command. Other, the scripture says, he lived there in subjection to them. Imagine, God subject to man. God before whom the angels and principalities and powers tremble is subject to Mary and to Joseph for Mary's sake. Here are the two great miracles of humility and exaltation. The God-man obeying a woman and the woman commanding the God-man. The very fact that he became subject to her and endows her with power and that obedience lasted for 30 years. And by this long span of voluntary obedience, he revealed that the fourth commandment is the bedrock of family life. In a larger way, how else could the primal sin of disobedience against God be undone except by the obedience in the flesh of the very God who was once defied? It was Lucifer who said, I will not obey. And Eden caught up that echo. Down the ages, its inflection traveled, worming its way into the nook and crevices of every family where there was gathered a father and mother and a child. Here is something to remember. As parents surrender their legitimate authority and primary responsibility to their children, the state begins to take over. When the parents no longer bring up their children in the love and fear of God and the children become juvenile delinquents, then the state takes over the home and takes over the children. That is why obedience in the home is the foundation of obedience in the commonwealth. For in each instance, conscience submits to a trustee of God's authority. If it be true that the world has lost its respect for authority, it is only because it has lost it first in the home. And as we said before, as the home loses this authority, then the state begins to become tyrannical. There is a bond established between the home and the state. It was democracy that put man on a pedestal. It was feminism that put woman on a pedestal. But neither democracy nor feminism can live a generation unless a child is first put on a pedestal and such is the significance of Nazareth.
how our Lord warned, too, about caring for the child. As he put it, And if anyone hurts the conscience of one of these little ones that believe in me, he had better have been drowned in the depths of the sea with a millstone hung about his neck. It is not to be thought, however, that obedience in the home does not include every other kind of obedience. That commandment embraces what is known as the virtue of pietas or piety, and it involves family and neighbor and the state. All authority comes from God. And this commandment obliges us to obey civil authority. Remember when Pilate boasted that he had power to condemn our blessed Lord? Our Lord said that he would not have the power unless it came to him from above. So sacred scripture tells us, every soul must be submissive to its lawful superiors. Authority comes from God only. And all authorities that hold sway are of God's ordinance. It is very beautiful to realize that both St. Paul and St. Peter asked for obedience to civil rulers, even though the civil ruler was Nero, who had put them both together. You will also find that those who love God are always the great patriarchs. Whenever there begins to be a decline of patriotism in a country, there was always a decline of belief in God. That brings us now to the other commandments, the fifth to the tenth. Our blessed Lord said that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, how do we love ourselves? Well, we love ourselves very much. We enter into a room, we look for the best chair. We do not buy the clothes that will look most unattractive upon us. We choose desserts with considerable discretion and regard to taste. We like praise. In fact, we love ourselves very much. But there are also some things we do not like about ourselves. We do not hate ourselves when we are boorish and loud and insulting to others or make excessive demands upon our neighbor or when we tell untruths that hurt our friends. You see, therefore, we can love ourselves and hate ourselves. What is it that we love in ourselves? Well, we love what is good in ourselves and we hate what is bad in ourselves. Find that to our neighbor, we love what is good in them, and we hate what is sinful in them. So we love the sinner, and we hate the sin. We love the neighbor as a spiritual self, but we do not necessarily love him as a carnal self. 
Our blessed Lord, therefore, tied together love of himself and love of neighbor and love of ourselves. There could, therefore, be two great errors. One is to love God without loving our neighbor, and the other would be to love our neighbor without loving God. We are often invited to take part in brotherhood weeks, brotherhood causes. There's much talk of the brotherhood of man. All that is very good and true, but how can we be brothers unless we have a common father? To leave the fatherhood of God out of the brotherhood of man is to make us all a race of illegitimate children. The love of neighbor is not to be standardized solely upon our love of ourselves, but rather upon the way that our Lord has loved us. And that is the way he put it. This is my commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. But who is my neighbor? The one who lives next door? Probably, particularly if he be an enemy. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was not the one who lived next door, but the one who was farthest away who turned out to be the neighbor. We can never tell in advance who is our neighbor. That is to say, the neighbor involved in love your neighbor. The neighbor can be a friend, just as our blessed Lord was a friend of Lazarus, and the neighbor could be an enemy. As was the case of the man who was injured on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The neighbor is the one who is in need. As regards interior esteem, interior value, the saints certainly have more of our esteem than do sinners. But on this earth, charity must be guided by the greatness of misery. First spiritual misery, then corporal. If there are two who are in misery and, and both are equally needy, then we can give to the one who is closest to us either by blood or by friendship. We said that the neighbor can also be the, the enemy. And our blessed Lord gave us this counsel, but I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute and insult you. Love of enemies is actually the touchstone to prove whether or not our love is truly divine. Hence, our blessed Lord said that before we bring a gift to him at the altar, we should go and be reconciled to our brother. If there's any conflict between us. And our Lord did not say, if you have something against your brother, he rather said, if your brother has something against you. Now, how can we be related to our neighbor? Well, by mind, by body, and then 
as regards things. First of all, our mind. We can be bound up with our neighbor in our thoughts, desires, resolutions, the way we speak to them, the way we listen to them. Then we can be related to our neighbor in body. We may work with them, we may work for them, and then, too, there can be pleasure as regards the communication of body with body. Finally, we can be bound to our neighbor as regards things, money, land, and property, the whole economic order. We are taking these three, mind, body, and mind, because they are, or rather things, because they are the sources when they are disordered and perverted. Of the three major kinds of sin, pride, which refers to the mind, lust or impurity, which refers to the body, and finally, avarice, which refers to things. Now let us take up our relationship to the neighbor as regards our thoughts, our mind. Here we deal with temptations because they are wholly in the mind. There are three elements to a temptation. Suggestion, delight, consent. You cannot sin in your mind until there is consent. And the consent comes from the will, not from the feeling. First, the suggestion may come from the eye, the ear, the memory, the imagination. A suggestion to sin, just as Eve was tempted by the word of Satan. Then secondly, there can be delight, and that can even be physical. We can feel the repercussion of the thought in our body. It does not make any difference how long that feeling may endure. There is no sin until is consent. I will to consent to that thought, or I will not to consent to it. We are not, therefore, to think that we are bad simply because we are tempted. We are tempted because we're human. It is only the consent which is wrong. Now, our relationship as regards the mind to our neighbor obliges us, therefore, to speak the truth. And why the truth? Well, simply because no other moral virtue can grow up without it. And furthermore, because in the sacrament of confirmation, we receive the spirit of truth. And also because the membership in the mystical body becomes more intimate, as St. Paul tells us, when we are bound together by truth. And the reason we are asked, therefore, to be Truthful is simply because the whole incarnation is truth. Remember that the word became flesh. In other words, the inner word or the thought of God became flesh, became externalized. And so too, as the Son is the image of the Father, so what I say externally with my lips must be the image of what is in my mind internally. 
word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Therefore all sins against truth are forbidden like lying and boasting, defaming character, injuring another's good name, rash judgment, falsely accusing others, denying our faith even under persecution, hypocrisy, and then even resolving to do something that is evil even when we are unable to carry it out. One can commit murder by thinking about it, resolving to do it, even though the thought never passes into act. That is why the commandments say, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Our blessed Lord says, Any man looking after a woman and lusting after her hath already committed adultery with her in his own heart. See, the church does not wait, or rather our blessed Lord does not wait until a thought passes out into act. He's not interested just in hygiene. He keeps clean all of the motivations of action. All of the little rivers that run into the ocean are kept clean, and the ocean itself will be kept clean. Next we come to the body our body, and also bodies of others. Now, the reason the body is deserving of respect is because, well, in the natural order, it is bound with the soul to constitute a person, and in the supernatural order, it becomes a temple of God because we are in the state of grace. So sacred scripture says to us, I appeal to you by God's mercies to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to God and worthy of his acceptance. I believe that we already said before, very often people who go in for excessive luxury of body are very often naked on the inside. The more the soul is clothed, with virtue, the less need there is of external display. So we have to take care of our body, and we do so not just for biological reasons, but we do it in order to better maintain our spiritual, moral life. Now, this does not mean that sickness is incompatible with holiness. It is not. Sometimes sickness diminishes temptation, unites us with the passion of our Lord, and assures us also of the promise of glory if we suffer in his name. We have to remember that every sin in the mind can be also an assault, not only on the mind, but also on the body. Therefore, as regards our own body, there will no, be no such thing as taking our own life because that belongs to God. For a woman, there will be no such thing as abortion. There will be no taking the lives of uncurable persons. There will be no evil thoughts or desires against the neighbor. And be no solitary sins, no drunkenness, and all the other sins against the body which you will find mentioned in the prayer book. 
And as there will be no sins against our own body, so none against the body of the neighbor, like murder, abortion, adultery, and the prevention of the fruit of love. Finally, we are related to our neighbor by things. Private property is the external guarantee of human freedom. The right to property is personal, but the use of property is social. Hence, we are bound to our neighbor in charity to give alms. Superfluities of the rich are the necessities of the poor. Our blessed Lord said, I was sick and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. There will therefore be also, as regards things, great charity, particularly to the missions of the church in pagan lands. As the Holy Father said, this is the charity that surpasses all other charities as heaven, earth, and eternity time. All sins, therefore, as regarded regarding things will be avoided. There will be no stealing. If there be stealing, there will be the restitution of what was stolen. If we do not know the person from whom something was stolen, then we will give a similar amount of charity. We will repair for unjust damage. We will give a full work for a day's pay. There will be the payment by employers of a living wage. There will be no cheating, no cutting of corners. The sacred scripture says, Thou shalt not carry two different weights in thy wallet, one heavy, one light. A just weight and a true thou shalt always use. All such knavery is hateful to the Lord thy God. He is the enemy of wrongdoing. And thus, the commandments. God you are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this week to learn a little bit more about our faith, uh, especially as it pertains to the commandments. Um, Again, this rule of life we need to develop uh, with the help of Archbishop Sheen. And, of course, that beautiful lesson on charity, um, that we need to uh, solve the world's social problems by uh, being generous. Uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. And so uh, I invite you uh, to be generous in your support of Radio Maria. And, uh, again, I would ask you to visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com and visit our charity book program tab that's there. And I mentioned earlier in the program this opportunity for you to receive uh, books uh, written by Archbishop Sheen. Uh, again, the, the simple donation uh, that is given uh, will allow us to uh, purchase airtime and pay for our expenses. And uh, so it's a win-win situation with our charity book program. Uh, you receive great books. We receive a few funds to help pay our bills. And so, uh, again, click on the charity book program at uh, bishopsheentoday.com and uh, please uh, be as generous as you can. 
Uh, we appreciate all of your help. My dear friends, uh, again, may you have a blessed week, and uh, until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.